the word in Hebrew that gets translated helper or helpmate into English is the same word that's used for Yahweh as Yahweh's rescuer and deliverer of Israel. So it just kind of frames help in a different way. And uh, yeah, and so then we ask the question, why was Eve referred to as the mother of the living? Why was she named that apparently after everything went down? Um, so someday we'll get to talk about all that. Today is not that day, unfortunately. Um, today we're going to go back to our series on living love, and we're going to talk about a story that none of you have ever heard before. It's in Luke 15, and it's the story of a couple sons and a dad. You have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? You guys are so, you're like, ooh, I'm ready for this. It's going to be good. We're going into new territory at Coastlands? I can't believe it. So we're going to talk about this story found in Luke 15 and what that has to do with living love. And maybe see how that ties into Pentecost, if it does. And talk about what Pentecost is. So I think it ties in. So this is where I pray for the Holy Spirit's help. Yeah, join me in prayer, please. Holy Spirit, you absolutely love and work hard to make sure that the love of Father that Jesus knows becomes not only something we talk about, but something we experience. Thank you for the way you met us, comforted us, inspired us, spoke to us during worship. And we ask that this morning, as we look at your word, as we tell some stories that Jesus told, Holy Spirit, would you do something fresh in our hearts? Would you help your light shine in the darkness? The places in our hearts that don't yet know your love, would you help your love to penetrate there? Help us to see this story of two sons and a father in, in new light, in a way that would help bring new light to our lives, our hearts, our experience of you. All right, Holy Spirit, we trust you to do this. Let's buckle up. Amen. Okay. I've had this problem lately of, of insisting that I spend some time really hearing God's heart for each Sunday morning instead of trying to just follow my own agenda because, to be honest with you, it would be a lot easier for me just to kind of um, go to, like, already prepped and really good sermons online.com or um, which I did do that a month ago did any of you notice no, I'm just kidding. Um, it would just I would make life so much easier on myself if I would just do that but for some reason um, well first of all I can't but the Holy Spirit keeps kind of giving me these things and this one came at 1034 last night I told Sarah last night at like 10 I'm like well tomorrow's gonna be interesting huh and then this morning, I'm like, tomorrow's going to be interesting. <laughs> um, 
last week, we talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about, let's just show the picture, because it's fun. Taylor, will you put the picture of who we talked about? So last week, we talked about this guy. This is, this is God in Lego form, according to popular Western Christian belief, right? We talked about how most of us, when we picture God, whatever that means, when we picture especially the Father, we picture a white bearded male, not in Lego form, this is that's like much bigger than actual size, but we talked about the picture that Scripture gives us of the Christian God is this being that is so far from a lonely, solitary, angry, look at the eyebrows, everybody just hone in on those eyebrows for a moment. That's like the clincher, isn't it? It's like, yeah, that's the God I grew up hearing about. We talked about scripturally, the picture of God is this picture of a father and of a son and of a Holy Spirit that are so distinct yet so one that the only way we can talk about them is this word Trinity, which combines the word three and one. We talked about the Trinity. And we talked about how Adam and Eve, we had Adam and Aaron, not Adam and Eve, but we talked about how when Adam and Eve ate from this tree, and we had some trees up here, and when Adam and Eve ate from this tree, that something happened to them where this God whom they had walked with, whom they had known, they had listened to, they had had fellowship with, all of a sudden they found themselves hiding from this God. And the question we need to ask, one of the questions is, when they ate from that tree, did something change in God to make God the kind of God that needs to be hidden from? Or did something change in them that made them feel like God was the kind of God that needed to be hidden from? And we've come to talk about this thing that caused them to hide as this thing called shame. And we find it humorous because it's us and we're not them. We find it humorous that they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, some of you are trying to picture that for a moment. How do you think that was working for them? Trying to cover their shame with fig leaves. But then I started thinking about something. I try to cover myself in fig leaves all the time. Originally I was going to talk this morning about moving from rejection as our kind of way of being. How many of you really love rejection? Raise your hand. I think we've talked about this before. Raise your hand if somebody, instead of a kid starting like a lemonade booth, they started a rejection booth. And what you did is you lined up and you came up there and they told you something really horrible about you. <laughs> Your nose is way too big. How many of you would sign up and pay for that? There's something in us that absolutely fears rejection more than anything else, right? I mean, wouldn't you say that most of the things we fear in this world are rooted in our fear of rejection? Can we bring that around to God for a moment, just as a very important side note? If, if this is God, then why would we ever fear rejection? Because if we're made in the image of a God that's lonely, then wouldn't loneliness be part of our wiring? Right? If we're made in the image of a God that knows loneliness, then we'd be like, oh yeah, sign me up for loneliness. But if we're made in the image of a God that is Father, Son, and Spirit, who only knows acceptance and inclusion and embrace, 
if we're wired in the image of a God like that, then wouldn't it make sense that rejection is a violation of our very being? The rejection cuts to the core of who we are, and isn't that why it hurts like, can I say hurts like hell in church? What I mean in a very literal way? Like, doesn't rejection just literally... Think about this for a minute. We had this line in our song, um, you restore every heart that is broken. What's a broken heart all about? A heart that's broken, what does that mean? Is a heart that's broken one united, intact heart? It's a heart that what? Becomes split, fragmented, disintegrated. Are you with me so far? How many of you know experientially what I'm talking about? Is it possible that Luke 15, the story of the parable of the dancing God, this running Father, has something to say to broken hearts and what it looks like for us to live loved and embrace God's acceptance of us? These kids have so much fun. I'm going to read through the story. We have to frame it real quick. The beginning, I'm going to stay back. I notice that, yeah, I have this tendency to like creep up that way. That's why we have two people in the front. Um, Larry's gone. But, so in Luke 15, it's this series of stories Jesus tells about a bunch of lost things. And the intention behind telling the stories is he's, he's essentially asked a question by these religious people. We talked before last Sunday about how religious people really like fig leaves. And there's a connection between Jesus cursing the fig tree and going to the temple. So these religious people in Luke 15, they come and they say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them because all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering with Jesus. And so Jesus goes into these parables. Now listen to this one. There's, well, first of all, you know, there's the parable of what? It's the lost sheep, right? And then a lost coin. And then he goes into a parable, and he says this in Luke 15, 11. I'm just going to put the references up there because it's a long little passage. So you can open up, look with me in your Bibles, your phones, however you do it. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. All right, pause, freeze. Last week we had a lot more fun when we had company up here, when we had physical props. Let's get some volunteers. We need a man. Do we have any men in here that can be fatherly? Give us a fatherly man. All right, Chris, will you get up here? You've been volunteered. <laughs> so, so we have a father... And this father has two sons. Can we get some sons up here? Come on. <laughs> so this man has two sons. So this man, he has two sons. And this man has two, he has two sons. 
<laughs> so this man has two sons. Look at we're blazing through this. Y'all are feeling so helpful this morning, aren't you? This man has two sons, and he's a fairly wealthy man. And one of his sons is off to the side somewhere, probably. And one of his sons, let's just let's stick to the text. I need to do better about sticking to the text. Please don't comment on that. So the younger son, um, which one's going to be the younger? <laughs> the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. <laughs> yeah. Coast lens, hashtag paradox, right? So now let me frame this for you for a minute. Some of you are aware that the house we live in is actually part of what's called the Brash Family Living Trust. Okay? Living trust means that my parents decided to buy a home that would that is currently theirs but will one day be mine and Sarah's. Isn't that awesome? That's pretty cool, right? My stepdad essentially realized one day, look it, we can give you your inheritance when we're ready to pass on, but by then you probably won't need it as much. It looks like you could really use a place now. And so they did this living trust thing. Imagine that this is my stepdad and that I come to him and I say, hey, thank you for letting us live in this house, for giving us really reasonable rent, but you know what? I would much rather that you just sign over the title to the house to me now. What am I essentially saying? I'd rather have what's coming to me than have you in my life. You're as good as dead to me. Because this home is more important than your presence. Now we have to have that as the frame for what this son is saying to this father. Dad, I wish you were dead. No big deal. Dad, I wish you were dead. Yeah. And the dad, he says, okay. And everybody's like, okay, Jesus, have you, what, <laughs> what are you doing here? So listen to the dad's response. I lost my page. Um, the father, so it says the father divided up his estate between them. Most likely, here, does this, do you want this to be part of your estate? Do you want those to be your estate? Um, so essentially, the father has to take and sell most of what he was going to give them, and he has to split up and give them the money from, from what he was going to give them once he passed away. So he divided everything between the two of them. Soon after, the younger son gathered everything together, and he took a trip to a land far away. See you later. There... He wasted his wealth through extravagant living. So he's partying over there at the party table. <laughs> Feel free. So he's drinking coffee. He's eating watermelon. But when he had used up his resources, when he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose. So none of that's there. He's eating all that up. And he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed... Can we have three more volunteers? Do we have three little piggies? 
We've got two here. So the pigs are wearing shades of red and purple. So he gets hired by this man. And the man sends him out to feed the pigs. Now, think about this for a minute. How did good Jewish boys feel about pigs? How often did they eat bacon for breakfast? Never. What had God told them regarding pigs earlier in their story of their people? Unclean. And it says that this boy, this young man, he's not only feeding the pigs, but listen to this line here. It says, he longed to eat from the fill of what the pigs were eating. He was so low, he wasn't even in a point where he was able to eat the food the pigs were allowed to eat. Where is this young man on the food chain at this point? What's that whole thing about, um, yeah, we say it could be worse for him? He's like, no, this can't get any worse. And he starts thinking to himself, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death? That's a really good coming to your senses. I like that. Have you done this before at your church? <laughs> okay, awesome. I will get up, he says to himself, and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he gets up to come back to his father. Pause. If this was, well, let me ask this way. If, if one of you were this father and your son had come to you and said, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance now and get out of my life, you might be watching for him to come back, right? And you'd probably see him while he's a long way off. But for any of you, would it be through like the barrel of a, like through the scope of a rifle? You'd be like, yeah, I can see you coming from a long way off, all right? And you kind of, he sees this little red laser on him, like, go. Oh. It says that while he was a long way off, and he's got his plea kind of ready, he's got his thing he's rehearsed. Now, have you guys, you haven't met before, so it's your first time. This is going to be fun. It says that the father, when he was a long way off, runs to him. <laughs> and we have our slow motion music playing. It says the father runs to him and grabs him, embraces him. Come on, Chris. <laughs> Will you sign a waiver? So the pigs are out of the picture. Thank you, piggies. So the father, the father runs to him and embraces him, and the son starts his spiel. He says, Father, I have sinned. And the father basically, I see your hand. <laughs> the father gives him one of these. Stop. Shut your mouth. You had me at hello. <laughs> the father won't even hear his plea for repentance. And the father 
tells a servant. Do we have a servant? Come on, just one servant. You can't be the servant. You're the older brother. Servant, we get up for a second? The father tells the servant, get a ring for his finger, which ring is basically giving back his authority and rightful place in the family. A ring for his finger, a robe for his shoulders, and sandals for his feet. Now, there's a lot of layers of meaning there that we don't have time to go into. But, you have a robe? <laughs> so the other servant saves the day. <laughs> yes, we have sandals. I've seen sandals with socks, but I haven't seen sandals over shoes. This is going to be awesome. Um, so he gives him a ring for his finger, which symbolizes authority. He gives him a robe, and he gives him sandals for his feet. <laughs> that way, running away is going to be really hard next time, <laughs> right? And he says to the servants, go get the fattened calf, because we're going to have a party. Now, would the whole village have known that this son had gone off? Would the whole village have known what this son had been getting himself into? Absolutely. What would have happened to the father's reputation as his son goes and does all of that? Would that have been good? Would that have brought honor upon the father? Absolutely not. It would have flooded him with so much shame. And yet, the father says, go get the fattest calf we don't have a calf. I'm not going to make somebody. <laughs> but go get a fattened calf and invite the whole village because we are going to throw a party. And he wants the whole village to know that he has forgiven his son for the shame the son brought on the whole entire family. Now, there's something really wrong with our picture, though, that you need to know. Will you come back over here for a minute? How many of you have heard a message on the prodigal son, which it's interesting that they call the message about him, but who's the central point of the story, actually? Who's, who's the central figure? <laughs> ah. It depends, doesn't it? Depends on who's reading the story. Would our father in the story have been wearing jeans like that? He would have been wearing something that probably looked similar to this, actually. would have gone all the way down. Yeah, that'd actually be perfect. Could you just take these off for a minute and just pull this down? <laughs> I was just kidding. Did you know I was kidding? So, but picture this father wearing something like this that goes all the way down. Now, let's imagine that you're wearing that. Will you run and embrace your son for us? How is that going to be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back and try that again. So, so how would that running look if you're wearing something just like this all the way down to your ankles? Run for us. Do you even think it would be that good? What would he have to have done? He would have to lift his skirt and expose his naked legs. How do Jews feel about nakedness? 
Do you remember the first time we experienced nakedness in the scriptural story? What do they try everything to do? To, they try to cover it. And yet this father finds himself in a position where the only way he can express his love for his son and his forgiveness for his son is to expose the nakedness of his legs and run and catch him. In other words, what the father was doing was something very, very shameful. Hmm. So the father exposes his own shame so that he can go and cover up the shame of his son? Where have we heard a story like that before? Where else have we heard of somebody becoming naked and experiencing shame so that they can open their arms and embrace someone else. Can I tell you a quick little side story? See, so my little sister, uh, she's adopted from China. We adopted her when she was three and a half or so. And so I was 18 years old at the time. I wasn't able to go with my family to China to go get her. I had seen some pictures of her and she had seen some pictures of me, but I was a super insecure 18-year-old. And the day came that my family was coming home from the airport with my new little sister. Now, give you a little bit of backstory real quick. She had been found at a train station at about eight months old with pneumonia and been abandoned in a basket and been taken to this orphanage. So she grew up about three years of her life in this orphanage. The stories we heard is that basically there weren't enough workers, caretakers in the orphanage, and so she spent the majority of her time tied to a high chair. That's kind of how she grew up. She was allowed to play a little bit, but this little girl had grown up knowing primarily rejection and abandonment. So you can imagine what I'm thinking. I'm already insecure. I already have this profound fear of rejection. I'm thinking this little girl is going to be brought into my family. Like, she's, I'm her brother now? This is my new sister? Can you imagine what I'm feeling? I'm thinking, what if she doesn't like me? Like, what if she's scared of me? What if we don't know how to relate? She didn't speak any English. So the day finally came, and I'm sitting there in the living room, and I'm just watching TV to pass the time. And I hear the garage door open, and I sprint to the door out to the garage, and I, the car has pulled in, and I see my grandparents who had gotten there first. My grandparents are kind of sitting outside the car, and they're just beaming. They're like, wow, I can't believe this. And I, I see my parents who are exhausted but elated because their little girl had come home. And so I come up to the doorway. I'm standing in the doorway just thinking, all right, this is the moment of truth. Like, what on earth is going to happen? And there's the, the van is parked right there, and I can see everybody else except for my little sister. Next thing I know, about where Isaac is, we're a little bit further past. Out of the side door of the van, this tiny little girl, she was three and a half years old, but she was probably just barely taller than Nathan. Just one of those cute little, I call it a hell mullet. It's like a helmet and mullet haircut put together. It's like the, you know what I'm talking about? Um, one of those little haircuts, and she jumps out, and she turns and looks at me for what feels like forever. And I'm just like, uh, what do I do? You're my new little sister. Do I hug you? Do I touch you? Do I say hi? Do I say ni hao? Do I, uh, before I can even respond, this little girl is running up to me. 
and she has her arms around my knees, and she's holding me around the kneecaps, looking up to me and smiling. And I'm just like, uh, uh. <laughs> I didn't really know what to do, but it just it melted every wall and defense mechanism and sense of fear and, and inhibition and nerve in me because this little girl, what was crazy is that as I looked down at her, I could see the scars from the high chair. She still has them. If you meet her sometime, you can still see the scars from the high chair on her elbows where she struggled to get out of the high chair. This little girl who knew that as her story somehow had the acceptance within her to run up to me and embrace me around the kneecaps. And I'm like, you don't even know me. She's like, I know, but I love you. And I tell that story because there's a big difference, actually. There's a lot of similarities between that story and this story. The difference between this story and that story is that the father knew everything about the son, knew everything he had gotten himself into, every evil intent of his heart, everything he had wasted, all the shame he had brought, every single thing he had done, and yet the father still insisted on enclosing him and folding him in this great embrace and saying, it's okay, I accept you because you're mine. The son had come back because he wanted to be a servant. And the father said, uh-uh, you're not coming back as a servant. You're not coming back to me with fig leaves on. You're coming back as my son. Remember the Adam and Eve story? Adam and Eve are hiding with fig leaves, and God says, that's not going to do it for you. And so God covers them with what? Animal skin. This father says, you are going to try to come back and be my servant? You're going to try to cover yourself with fig leaves? No, we're going to kill a calf for you, and we're going to throw a party. We're going to give everything we have to take away your shame, because you belong to me. And, of course, we have an older brother in the story who, when the spotlight turns to him, he says, Dad, actually the dad has to go out and get him because he's out working. And the dad has to go to the older brother and he's like, Seriously, Dad? You did all that for him? Don't you know what that loser has been up to? He's like, Dad, I've served you faithfully my whole life. I've never once even disobeyed you. Yeah, right. Dad, I've never once disobeyed you, yet you've never once thrown a party for me. He says, the son actually says, you haven't even killed a goat for me. When's the last time you had a party where they had barbecued goat? It expresses the sense of scarcity in the older brother's mind, doesn't it? Dad, you never even killed a goat for me. Dad, you have been holding out on me. Isn't it interesting that Adam and Eve were kind of on both sides of this story. And the dad says, son, you don't get it. From the very beginning, everything that I've always had has always been yours. And the son doesn't know how to react. <laughs> so can I... Can I propose something to us? 
Um, in terms of biblical scholarship, I'm not sure how this is going to hold up. I'll just say that up front. How many of you feel like you, you think the place we're going to go is I'm going to say, now find yourself in this story. Which person are you, right? We're going to say, like, now, how many of you are the, that's kind of what we do with this story, right? How many of you relate to the prodigal son? Okay, now stand up, come up to the front, we're going to have a repentance time. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Out of curiosity, did the son even ask forgiveness? Did he even repent, or did the father cut him off and shut him up and embrace him before the words even came out of his mouth? It actually says in the text, he tried to give his spiel, but the father wasn't listening because the father had already decided upon acceptance, not on him trying to earn approval. Okay. Here's what I want us to think about. What if you don't need to find yourself in this story? Have you heard the phrase before that we can only be loved to the extent that we are known? That you can only be loved to the extent that you are known? Think about that for a minute. So going back to the story of my little sister, she comes up and she floods me with all this affection and this embrace, this acceptance, but... Because she doesn't know me, what's easy to come up in my mind? Isn't it easy for me to say, yeah, she can do that, but if she really knew blank, blank, blank about me, she wouldn't. How many of you have ever had that happen? Somebody wants to be your friend, somebody reaches out to you, somebody's like, hey, I really like you, I enjoy you, and you're like, yeah, you say that now, just wait a few months. Huh. Somehow, for some reason, we do this Adam and Eve thing where we take certain parts of us and we hide them because we know that if people see those parts of us, they will not accept us. And so we learn to hide, even from ourselves, certain parts of our very being, don't we? How many of you have, let me ask you this for a minute. How many of you have a part in you that, that you would consider bad or evil? Raise your hand if you have something inside of you you'd consider bad or evil. Is it possible that that's absolutely incorrect? And that according to Jesus, there's not a single thing in you that's evil, but it's simply a matter of how the things inside of you are used. And it's the frame that we've been given going back to the garden. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. You know what the very first lie is? Categorize things, put them in the compartment of good or in the compartment of evil. Now what did Adam and Eve do with themselves? What category did they put themselves in? Why were they hiding? Because they put themselves in the compartment of evil. Now Sarah and I did a little experiment with this, and we, we don't have time to go into it fully now, but I would propose that one of the things that holds us back from fully living love is rejection, but not in the sense of rejection from others, but actually the parts of ourselves that we have rejected. The parts of ourselves that we have rejected because we are convinced that God does not approve of them, that God will not accept them. Here's what I'm trying to say. Is it possible that the story of the prodigal son and the other prodigal son and the dancing father, that we are not to find just us, ourselves, in one of these characters, 
but actually this is a picture of what goes on inside of our hearts and minds every day. How many of you have prodigal parts of yourself that you try to hide and send far away from God because you don't believe that God will accept them? How many of you have older brother parts of yourself that says, I can do better, I can earn this, I can achieve this, I can earn God's love? And what if God says, hey, I embrace the whole thing of you. Remember a few months ago we talked about the flesh? The Bible talks about the flesh. Is it possible that the flesh is simply the parts of us that don't know that they are already embraced by Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit? What have I gotten myself into? How many of you are familiar with putting those dividing walls up in your heart, compartmentalizing yourself? It's like we have these parts of us that we hide. How many of you have something that you spend a lot of energy pushing back, trying to keep from the forefront? How many of you are scared to go to those places sometimes? How many of you immediately know what the prodigal parts of you are? We immediately know what the prodigal parts of us are. You know the beautiful thing about this story and about God? The beautiful thing is that as soon as we have the courage to actually go to those places and uncover what they are and discover what's going on there and the things we try to hide, you know what we find there? We find Jesus sitting there holding on to those parts saying, I always knew about this. I'm not afraid of it. And as soon as we look at it together, I can start to heal it. I think the biggest rejection that we need to learn to overcome is not fear of rejection from others, but coming home to the reality that there are parts that we've rejected of ourselves. And God says, I want to make you whole again. That broken heart we talk about, I want to take those broken pieces and I want to put them back together. I love how in John chapter 1, it says of Jesus, the Word, it says the light shines Where? Where there's no darkness? It says the light shines into the darkness, but the darkness cannot understand it. How many of you have parts of yourself that can't simply comprehend that Jesus could love, embrace, accept, and hold on to those and be bigger than those? And John says, this light shines into the darkness. The darkness might not understand it, but this light still gives light even into the darkness. So the question isn't, where do I find myself in the prodigal son story? It's, where do I find the prodigal sons in myself? And what does Jesus have to say? Such an interesting landing place. So it's Pentecost. And we're going to do something kind of fun. Um, I think that the prodigal son story actually sets the stage and moves us into Pentecost. I think it has to do with the ring and the robe and the sandals. 
For those of you that aren't familiar, Pentecost is simply the birthday of the church. It's the day that the Holy Spirit fell on the church in an unprecedented way where God said, I'm going to give my authority, I'm going to clothe my children in my power and my love so that they can go out into the world and bring the party that is my life to the world that the world will know that they belong to me and that they don't need to hide anymore. Pentecost is kind of the next chapter of the prodigal son story. It's the party continued. It's the day the Holy Spirit came. Have I given you guys anything to think about so far? So let's do this. In a couple minutes, we have to let the kids loose. But I'm going to just, you guys can take a seat. You guys are, thank you. I know there's a lot more we could say, and I'm, I'm imagining that maybe things are coming to your mind right now. Um, really, the point of all this for me is that a lot of us know what hiding is like. We know what our fig leaves are, don't we? We know the parts of ourselves that we don't ever want God to see because we've put them in the category of evil. And Jesus comes to us and says, hey, that good and evil game, that categorizing, you leave that to me. Because dealing with good and evil is not the economy, the currency of my way of thinking. I deal with life. What I have for you is this tree of life. And I want you to know my life. So will you come out of hiding so that my light can penetrate every piece of you, not just the pieces that you think are acceptable? 